Well, hello and welcome to the eighth episode of the Basic Bible Podcast, where we're trying to take theology from the classroom and move it into the living room where you're at. And thank you once again for joining us. We are back with Dr. Brian Hansen of Bethlehem College and Seminary. Uh, Brian, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Kevin, for inviting me. It's good to be back. You know, take us just a second and and tell us a little bit about Bethlehem College and Seminary, because the program that you guys do there is different than your typical Bible college, and it's really a unique and and fascinating approach to uh, not just study of theology, but mentoring uh, people into ministry. That's correct, yes. So the program that that I specifically teach in is called the Omnia program, where Omnia means all things in Latin and comes from uh, Colossians 1, where we we, uh, see that Paul says all things cohere in Christ. And so what we're trying to do at Bethlehem College and Seminary is to, to paint this picture of the glory of God in all things and that all things in uh, the field of education. So whether it's philosophy or literature or history or Greek or theology, all these things cohere in Christ and Christ is, has gifted us as Christians and the world with all these multifaceted areas and subjects. So our goal, uh, my goal as a professor is connecting all these seemingly separate subjects mm. and to present them as one cohesive whole uh, because we see the glory of God in all things. So in the classroom, we are integrating, and our, we call our program Integrated because we're integrating history, literature, philosophy, and various parts of the humanities into various lectures. And so we're showing our students the connection between all these various humanities rather than a silo approach where there would be one class on history and then next hour you go to your Bible class and after that that, you go to your English class. We're doing it all within one class. Mm. And so our curriculum is very robust and rigorous and it deliberately goes through these various subjects all in an integrated uh, manner. So um, that's what uh, I'm doing. That's my role is uh, as assistant professor of Mm. humanities and theology there. All right, so on this program, we're continuing really kind of where we left off last week. We talked about the Protestant Reformation, and specifically we're going to be talking this week about the English Reformation. And Brian, you did uh, your doctoral work out in Scotland at the University of St. Andrews, and this is really where your focus was, was the, was the English Reformation. So tell us how, how did things jump from Germany to England and uh, how things took hold there um, in uh, in Britain, yes. So, in the last podcast, we talked about Luther having a very strong presence in the printing press mm. in Germany and Wittenberg. As a result of all that literature coming out from Luther, those sermons, most of them which were in German, some would have been in Latin, but many of those treatises would have been in the vernacular German kind of spread throughout Europe. They went to France, they went to uh, what we call uh, um, Holland or Netherlands today, uh, and it went across the channel uh, mm. to England uh, in German form. And you had some scholars in Cambridge in particular who could read German, and they were really impressed by what Martin Luther was uh, arguing for. And so you had men such as Tyndale in particular in England, um, Robert Barnes, Thomas Bilney, George Stafford were really gripped 
um, mm. by what Luther had to say. And before long, men started to, in England, in London in particular, started to translate Luther's works into English. And so around the 1520s and 1530s, you start to see in English printing presses works of Luther coming out translated into English. Mm. Before long, you have groups of people, especially there's a group uh, in Cambridge led by Tyndale and, and Barnes and Billy and Stafford and so forth that start to have meetings and they talk about the Lutheran doctrine uh, mm. that's coming out. And they start to have these Bible studies, so to speak, and meet in pubs and talk about the gospel. And, uh, and, and this catches fire and students in Cambridge start to catch this Reformation flame and they start to get excited. And at this point, England is still Catholic. Henry VIII is on the throne, but mm. he's Catholic and he's committed to uh, the Pope. and He's committed to Catholicism. And so this is all in secret uh, because if the word came out, these men would have been killed and right. arrested and killed. And so they did this in secret. Um, and so people kept talking about this. Luther's works kept coming in into England, being translated into English. And eventually a political thing happens. This is where politics and religion come and play in England. Henry VIII, lo and behold, wants to divorce one of his wives, mm. um, uh, namely Catherine of uh, Aragon. And so the Protestants, uh, the evangelicals, the underground, so to speak, evangelicals, look at this as a prime opportunity to get religion, yeah. the Protestant religion, into Henry VIII's ear. And so, of course, the Pope does not want to uh, annul uh, Henry VIII's marriage. He says, you have married Catherine, and she needs to stay your wife. And Henry VIII doesn't want to listen to that. He says, I don't want to listen to what the Catholic Church says. And so you have men such as Thomas Cranmer and others start to talk to Henry VIII and said, you know, according to what we, our views, interpretation of the Bible, you're free to uh, annul your marriage with Catherine. And you don't have to listen to the Pope. You can go ahead and separate. And so he got started at council in the late 1520s. And by around 1531, during the year 1531, Henry VIII one day declares himself as head of the church. Mm. He writes a letter to the Pope. He writes a letter to Cardinal Wolsey, who is a uh, main cardinal in England at the time, and says, I am now separating from the, the Church of Rome. Uh, I am now head of the Church of England. And uh, this completely shocks the world at this mm. time. It completely jolts uh, the Roman Catholic uh, Church in England. And so the reformers took advantage of the situation. They looked at this in political terms and saw this opportunity for Henry to start his own way, the Church of England. And they were envisioning a very Protestant uh, English church, mm. but Henry was one of those um, rascals, really, who was just politically motivated, and he – he played he played along with the reformers a little bit, but then he, then one time or several times he would go to the Catholic side mm. and he would appease his Catholic um, priests and uh, cardinals and so forth, and he would just come completely stump the evangelical reformers. So the history of English Reformation was constantly back and forth for these yeah. first thirty years, back and forth from more Protestant leanings to Catholic leanings, back, back to Protestant and so forth. And so that's the history of the English Reformation in a nutshell. Um, where it's completely different in Germany, where you have um, lots of lots of fighting of actual wars, yeah. um, which Luther condemned, of course. Um, whereas in England, you you had more more peace, I would say, 
but um, you did have the distinctive quality, I would say, is you had some monarchs, uh, namely Edward VI and Queen Elizabeth I, that supported Protestant Reformation pretty pretty uh, well, and um, not always to the pleasure of all the reformers, but right. most reformers were quite pleased with Edward VI and Elizabeth I for them, for them in the main. So that's a distinctive difference, I would say, from uh, the German Reformation. Now, were there any doctrinal differences between what was going on with Luther in Germany and uh, those in England? Not qualitatively, I would say. There, there would be slight differences. So the English Reformation took a more Calvinistic turn. Yeah. Um, uh, let me back up here. So the I would uh, I would argue, and I argue this in um, the thesis I wrote and completed not too long ago, that the German Reformation came into uh, the English Commonwealth by means of a man named Robert Barnes. Robert Barnes was a was English evangelical, and he personally studied with Luther. He was a disciple of Luther, mm. English but disciple of Luther. When he came back to England in the 1530s and supported Henry VIII's uh, divorce of Catherine, he started to preach the gospel in very Lutheran terms. He loved Luther. He loved everything about Luther, and so he preached a very Lutheran yeah. uh, gospel, a very Lutheran theology. Um, and so the, I would argue that the initial part of the English Reformation was very Lutheran. However, it took a very Calvinistic turn, and I use, I use that phrase to mean Calvin's influence. Yeah. Calvin's influence was very heavy from about 1550 onward, and that was because certain evangelicals in England started to go to Calvin in Switzerland and started to actually have meetings with him and talk with him, and they were very impressed by Calvin. And they mm. started to take especially his ideas of the Lord's Supper. And this is the huge difference between England right. and Germany when it comes to Reformation worship. It was the idea of the Lord's Supper, in Calvin terms, having spiritual, deep spiritual um, meanings, um, that you were, when you were being, that you were actually being nourished by the bread and the wine, not that that not that the bread and one were actually the actual physical right. body of Jesus Christ, but while taking the elements, there was something spiritually happening, uh, and that's what Calvin would argue, and that's what really impacted and influenced mm. the English reformers from Thomas Beacon to Thomas Cranmer and others uh, in the main. Uh, that was different from Luther. Luther believed in consubstantiation, uh, which is different from what Calvin believed. But the English Reformation sw completely switched gears for, from a more Lutheran understanding of that to a Calvinistic understanding of the Lord's Supper and other as ways too. So qualitatively, I would say not huge differences, but in t terms of worship, definitely. And, and Lord's Supper is one of the big ones. But we can look at music as well too uh, and deeply, and some, some scholars have done that. But I would say more church worship were the main differences. Now, one of the guys that was influenced heavily there in Germany was William Tyndale, um, mm -hmm. which is some of his translations. So tell us a little bit about we, – we, we normally talk about different scriptural passages. Mm -hmm. um, but in this episode, I want to focus on the scriptures themselves as uh, William Tyndale would, would spend his life mm – -hmm. um, translating that into the English language um, in, in the common vernacular. So tell us a little bit about Tyndale and his work. Yes. So Tyndale, his passion was the scriptures in the Bible, and in particularly translating mm. uh, uh, the Bible into the vernacular English language. And this was a passion that 
that Luther had as well, translating the Bible, uh, first the New Testament and the Old Testament into German. And the the philosophy behind Luther and Tyndale's drive to translate language was the philosophy, the idea that every boy, every girl, every uneducated person, every educated person should yeah. have the privilege of reading the scriptures and having in their hands. And so Tyndale is often attributed by, by saying that he wanted the plowboy to have a copy of the scriptures in his hands and to actually read it, not in Latin, not the Latin Vulgate, but the actual English language. Yeah. And so Tyndale worked very voraciously to translate the Bible first into uh, English and New Testament, and then eventually the Old Testament, and that eventually cost him his life. And he he had a number of smugglers working for him, smuggling copies across the Channel and getting those into hands when Henry VIII was at that point not for it at all. Um, and then uh, other reformers also got in trouble. Robert Barnes, I mentioned earlier, actually mm. he became a martyr because he was involved in trying to get Tyndale's New Testaments across the Channel, and he was he was caught. And uh, burned at the stake in the uh, in the mid 1530s, uh, and other men as well. But the whole idea is the Tyndale and these other reformers stressed the importance of the scriptures and making the Bible yeah. available for all. And even though much blood was shed and much martyrdom happened as a result of that in the 1530s, um, God's word prevailed in English, yeah. and Henry VIII eventually became. Uh, in favor of having the Bible English actually support it later on, ironically, even though he uh, signed uh, the death of Barnes and Tyndale, he eventually uh, funded uh, the translation of the Bible in English later on. And that whole concept completely changed English society, where everyone can now have a copy of the Bible in their household, and prayer books are coming out now with with portions of scripture, mm. children's catechisms, adult catechisms, and this, the printing presses blow up with all these literatures on the Bible and the Bible itself in the 1550s and 1560s. It's amazing what's happening. Right. It completely revolutionizes English life. I think one of the fascinating things about modernity now is that we have the privilege of fighting over not the scriptures, but what translation of the scriptures we're going to use. There's such a, uh, a wide variety that we get to pick and choose. Um, right. Whereas those before us didn't didn't have anything close to that. Um, but in, in our in our dangers to avoid section, now uh, it, it wasn't as if people were just think uh, you know the, whether it's the King of England or uh, the Pope or or the, the leaders of the church saying okay we don't like the Bible or we think that the Bible in itself is detrimental to faith. But the idea was as as Tyndale said. We don't want the plowboy reading this because now with an untrained eye, he's going to come up with wild and fanatical interpretations. Um, mm. You know, you mentioned the Anabaptists, and, and some of those guys were, were pretty wild in uh, some of their interpretations. So uh, without a, a an authoritative guide to the scriptures, there's a fear that whoa, um, this is dangerous. So talk to us a little bit about that because there we do see this in our, in our modern society. Uh, you know, you just had the guy out, uh, I can't remember where he was, but um, was it September 23rd, Christ was coming back? Because if you looked at all these different things and arranging all these different proof texts and whatnot, 
he came up with just this fanatical conclusion. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do we stay clear from that without an authoritative uh, edict from the church? Mm-hmm. Good. So the a concept, a phrase that um, Luther and other reformers constantly emphasized was the priesthood of the believers, this idea mm-hmm. that we as Christians have access to God the Father through Jesus, his Son. And we don't need a priest or a mediator to bring us to God, but Jesus is the mediator, as the author of Hebrews teaches us. And so with that in mind, everyone, including the plowboy or the magistrate or the mariner or or mother, can read the scriptures in his or her own tongue. And, of course, the danger, as you mentioned, could be to devise your own interpretation and, and so forth. And, of course, we see in the Bible, uh, even Peter himself in one of his epistles says I mean, there's no private interpretation of scriptures. Right. That's where the rule of faith comes in uh, handy, and the rule of faith being that we're looking at various traditions. Now, rule of faith does not uh, is not definitive or in- inspired, but it's helpful to look at, you know, counsel of Chalcedon or Council of Ephesus and look at these and Nicaea and look at these councils of, of the patristic fathers who, who wrestle over issues such as the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Jesus Christ and so forth. Um, but what's happening in the Reformation is Luther, Calvin, Tyndale, and Cranmer, they're, they're not denying that the fact that there needs to be some, some standard involved as right. well too. And so they'll often argue back to the fathers uh, like, Augustine and um, Chrysostom and others, but uh, they they are still having a very organized, strict uh, plurality of of elders. Uh, I'm using that word in a contemporary way. Right. They they had a very strict church authority still, where there would be a pastor and preacher who would who would uh, arrange and organize the worship service, and that would preach. Uh, from the pulpit, and so Calvin, for example, in his church uh, in Switzerland, was was very careful to exposit the scriptures and to give counseling and to show the truth of the gospel and and the truth of the scriptures through his preaching yeah. and through his counseling. Um, and so they were careful to try to shepherd the people so that they don't be led astray by various uh, themes and. These these doctrines, as the, the Anabaptists that you mentioned, could fall into. Yeah. So the, while you do have the priesthood of believers, you do have caution issued by lots of reformers of of following uh, what we would call the rule of faith and following mm-hmm. the teaching of the Bible and being committed to look into the Bible, kind of like the Berean Christians in the yeah. Book of Acts, and, and and compare the preaching that they're hearing with the actual scriptures. Right. And that's an interesting. Uh, Dynamic because, uh, yes, we are to judge whatever we're hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is our ultimate authority, sola scriptura. Mm-hmm. Yet at the same time, as I'm listening, you, you talked about expository preaching. And one of the reasons I, I believe that is so important is because if expository preaching is done correctly, it is showing you how to study Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got into a, a conversation with a colleague uh, just recently of a – uh, pastor we had both heard uh, preach a message that was a biblically sound message, but it was not an expository message in that he wasn't actually expositing or 
or going through exposing the scripture, but saying things that were true. And, and the problem with that, I, I found, was that if you're doing that, you're teaching people to follow yourself, but not the scripture. And, and mm-hmm. so when preaching is done right, you are learning to, to read the scripture and study the scripture for yourself. And at the same time, you're also uh, checking uh, to see uh, the, if this content of your pastor is indeed scriptural. Um, so the, as you said that the church, while it may not have ultimate authority, certainly the church does have authority. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as, as we go through that, that's one of the reasons why it's so important to be in a local Bible believing church, um, mm-hmm. is that so people can, can help and guide and shape you, give you those boundaries, uh, in the sense where you can develop all of this. Amen. That's right. Exactly right. And and uh, the 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 idea of expository preaching is very important to Reformation. It happened in the patristic era, but it was largely abandoned in the medieval Catholic era. And the revival of expository preaching with Luther and Calvin and Thomas Beacon and Cramner uh, really made an impact upon people's uh, literacy of the Bible, but yeah. also spiritually in applying various parts of the Scripture, including the Old Testament to bear upon their very lives. Right. So it's an amazing thing that happens uh, with expository preaching in the, in the Reformation. And in terms of application, I think we really hit on a lot of that right there. But also just to, to mention, you have a Bible. Read it. Uh, you have a Bible. So study it and uh, mm-hmm. dig deep into God's Word. We don't just have to uh, take the bite-sized devotional portions, uh, whether it's our daily bread or whatever, but uh, we we can study the scriptures for ourselves, and what a pleasure that is. So we're, we're getting into our, our, our final segment here about recommended resources. We, got, we kind of mentioned some of that uh, last week, but are, are there any other resources that you would um, recommend to study, to dig deep into specifically uh, the English Reformation? So uh, I... Yes, I would reiterate uh, some of the uh, resources. Again, I would recommend uh, the biography of Thomas Cramner by Dermot McCulloch, uh, published by uh, Oxford University Press back in 1996, I believe. Um, Excellent book, and it talks not just about Cramner, but about his day and about the men who he interacted with. Very, very helpful, uh, large book. Um, uh, There's also other books on the English Reformation that he wrote, Dermot McCulloch did. Uh, one book he wrote about uh, Edward VI. Uh, it's called Tudor Church Militant, and it's largely about Edward VI, who was compared to King Josiah uh, as the boy king. He became king um, at the age of nine, Edward VI, and um, um, died when he was 16. But he, um, uh, McKillop, uh, in that book, explores. Uh, Edward VI and his faith and how he and his counselors worked together to propagate and spread the English Reformation uh, across um, the, the Commonwealth. Uh, that, that's a very, very, very good book. Um, and then the actual primary text of the day, such as sermons, we still have sermons yeah. of extent by, by Cranmer. I, I love reading the actual sermons of Cranmer. Very, very weighty, very... Um, very deep uh, and very helpful. Um, Thomas Beacon is another one. Thomas Beacon is um, one that I've studied in great depth uh, during my PhD uh, years in St. Andrews. And uh, Thomas Beacon wrote 
uh, number of tracks. Um, uh, there's approximately uh, 55 of them. Uh, some, it's hard. To, I say approximately because we don't know for sure because he was he um, his name was anonymous for a while because he was trying to hide from the, from King Henry VIII as well as Mary I. So he uh, used a pseudonym, and so it's approximately in the fifties. And that's that's a that's a very uh, a large number of books for a reformer during that time. So we have sermons and books by him. So anything by Thomas Beacon, uh, again, there's there's uh, writings of his available uh, in print even today. So um, another one is Hugh Latimer. I've read several mm. sermons of Hugh Latimer, uh, or most of his sermons, and he, um, again, very helpful. Latimer and Cranmer were martyred at the stake, of course, right. um, in 1553 by Mary I, Bloody Mary herself. Uh, so reading these actual men and their sermons and uh, being able to to uh, use them to nourish one's soul is very, very helpful for them. Right, especially look up Hugh Latimer. I, my, my favorite phrase of the entire Reformation, play the man. Master, really. uh, yeah. looking at the martyrdom of, of, of Latimer. Uh, a couple other resources I want to recommend that uh, Brian didn't. First off, you can you can still read uh, Tyndale's translation of the New Testament, which is really a foundation for future um, uh, future translations as well. Um, but surprisingly, uh, Brian mentioned uh, Thomas uh, Thomas Beacon. Then you can listen to. Uh, Brian's work on that. If you go to the Desiring God website uh, this month, they're going through the uh, through a number of different reformers, and uh, you can listen to Brian's work on Thomas Beacon, uh, the Monday Morning Protestant. You can Google that. We'll have a link to that as well. And uh, Brian, one other work I want to mention that has really I don't say nothing to do with the Reformation, but your book on Abraham Shear. Tell us a little bit about Waiting on the Spirit of Promise. Yes. So Waiting on the Spirit of Promise is largely a a look at a pastor english pastor named abraham cheer now he comes about 100 years after reformation right. but the puritan era is still very important and, and i would say directly connected with the reformation if you if you, there was no reformation there would be obviously no puritans right. uh, so um Cheer is this not an ordinary puritan he's actually a baptist and he's one of the very first baptists uh, of uh, the 1600s and so he's um he comes 20 years after uh when when he becomes pastor of his first church he comes 20 years after the first church baptist church of southern london he pastors a baptist church in plymouth england on the south uh, east near the channel or southwest rather and he uh was arrested early on in his ministry uh in 1660 when the uh, act of uniformity was made and lots of pastors, including uh, the well-known John Bunyan, were arrested. And Shear mm. spent the rest of his years in prison. He spent eight years of his life, final life in prison. He died at age of 42 in prison uh, as exile for rebelling against the king's orders to sign the act of mm. uniformity, which he refused to, of course. So um, in that book uh, that I uh, wrote, I include a number of um, uh, poems and right. hymns that he wrote in his prison cell as well, which are very, very powerful. I will have a link to that on, on, on our website. And Brian, I don't know if you can see this or not. The problem I have with my copy, um, it's not signed. <laughs> and so we're going to have to fix that at some point um, next time I'm, I'm up there. So, But thank you, uh, Brian, for taking the time these, these past two weeks to uh, share with us. Uh, about the Reformation and how that really applies with us uh, still today. It's been my deep pleasure. Thank you. All right.
Thank all of you for joining us and join us back next week. Uh, we'll be talking more actually about expository preaching. Um, so you won't want to miss that. So thank you very much and have a great rest of your week. 